Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Peringer. Well, tonight we want to talk about our great God. And, you know, I've used Wednesday nights to talk about biblical truths, uh, solid doctrine um, that we need, uh, just, uh, truth. I mean, that's what this world needs is truth. In fact, on Sunday I'm going to be talking about truth a little bit more because so many people don't believe that there is a truth. And uh, I, I'd call this study truth for life because these doctrines, these beliefs, uh, you know, they're not boring. These are, these are spiritually life-giving uh, truths. These are essential truths that lead us to life. Jesus Christ is our life. And so a lot of people say, yeah, but doctrine is boring, you know. But here's the thing. Do you consider the air that you breathe boring? Do you consider the water that sustains your life boring? Well, I mean, you, don't, you probably don't even think about it maybe that much. Well, those things sustain your life. This, these truths sustain our spiritual life. These give us life. You know, air, water, they are uh, essential. They're life-giving. Doctrine is essential. It gives us truth about the life giver. Now, we learn about these truths through Scripture because Scripture is our ultimate authority for life and practice. But, you know, there's so much that is contained in Scripture. How do we learn uh, what is uh, true and what, you know, how do we summarize these truths? Well, throughout history, the church has used creeds and, and confessions um, to summarize uh, these, these truths that, that focus in on the person of God and more specifically focus in on the person of Jesus Christ. And these are important because so many people think, well, you know, Christianity is just another ethical system. It's just another moral system to follow. It's one of many ethical systems that are out there. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's not. It's not just an ethical system. We learn the truths about who God is, and, and we learn about His goodness. And from the person of God and the person of Jesus Christ, that is where the morals and the ethics uh, come in. First comes the doctrine, and then comes the morals. If your doctrine is off, your morals are going to be off. If what you believe about God is off, your ethics are going to be off. How you live is going to be off. Your worldview is going to be off. And so it is very important to know what we believe about God. Now, the confessions obviously can only go so far. And no, we don't always agree with everything that is said within these confessions. Our ultimate authority, again, is Scripture. And now lately, I've been using the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith as a springboard to talk about some important things of truth. We don't necessarily believe every fine detail that is found in there, but I'll tell you what, it, it, it points us in some good directions and some very important conversations that need, uh, need to be had. And, and it, it summarizes, so, you know, I'm, uh, I've used it lately to talk about God. I mean, that's obviously a very big subject, but we've learned that God is eternal and, I mean, a lot of other things. It's, it can be overwhelming. Our, we have an awesome God. I mean, that, that, uh, that's not just a song. Our God is an awesome God. I mean, we really do have uh, a, a, an awesome God. And He, within His counsel, 
eternal council decided to create and to share the love of the Godhead with others. There was a point, in, there was a point, it's hard, to it's hard to talk about the eternal state without referencing time, but God was outside of time before there was time. I guess I better stop before I confuse myself. But he was eternal, and there was a point where only God existed within the eternal state. And then, I have to use ter terminology of time, there came a point where God decided to create things outside of himself. And the fact of creation and how God interacts with his creation is intertwined with many of the characteristics and attributes that I have spoken of uh, before. But, you know, he, his relationship with his creation comes from his attributes and who he is, his character. And we want to look at a, at a paragraph uh, that is found within that Baptist confession. We are Baptists, so we look at the Baptist confession. And we're going to just take it bit by bit because th there's a whole lot there. The first, and, um, and the prayer sheet, there's a sheet attached and it has all the, the, the paragraph and the, the, summer, the scripture summaries that I want to use. Um, but this is what the confession says about God and his relationship with creation. It says that God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all sufficient in himself. He does not need any cre creature he has made, nor does he derive any glory from them. Instead, he demonstrates his own glory in them and by them, to them, and upon them. So the Puritans who had created this uh, confession started by making sure that we understood that there is a distinction between the creator and creation. There is a, a distinction. The creator is on a completely different level from creation. He's on a different level of existence than anything that he had made, whether it's invisible, you know, the spiritual realm or visible, the physical realm, whether it's of heaven or of earth, God is completely different. Now, yes, we reflect, can reflect in some certain ways some of God's character and some of his attributes, but they do not, we, we do not, as creation, we do not relate all of his character and attributes, and the ones that we do relate or reflect uh, they pale in comparison to the immensity that God uh, holds with them. And so we always have to keep in the back of our mind and remind ourselves there is no one and nothing like God. The most stunning archangel is no more like God than an earthworm because God is God. He is unique. There is no comparison in his levels of existence. And it's important for us to remember this because if I can put this just plainly, us humans need to be reminded that we're not God. You're not God. I'm not God. None of us are like our God. We need to be reminded of that because sometimes we act like we are. Sometimes we think we are. We think we're in control. We think we're in charge. We think that everything revolves around us. No. We need to stop thinking and acting like we are God. 
We have to remember there is the distinction between the creator and the creature. Now the writers of the, the confession demonstrate this by, it talks about God's independence and his self-sufficiency. Meaning God doesn't need anything from anybody else. I'm trying to think of the proper English way to say that because I was about to say God don't, God don't need nothing from nobody, but you know, that, that's not very good English. He needs nothing. We, on the other hand, need everything uh, from him. Nothing we do or say affects God. He does not change. There's nothing that we do that can change him. Um, the, those fine men in the book of Job, even though there's a lot of things they got wrong, sometimes they got things right. And, and it says in Job 22, verses 2 through 3, is it to God that a strong man is of benefit? Is it to him that even a wise man is profitable? Is it of any special benefit to the Almighty that you should be righteous? Or is it any gain to him that you may make your ways blameless? I mean, is there anything that any human being, no matter what their attribute might be, that could add to God, that could affect God, that could change God, that could help God or take away from God? No, there is no one. What a creature is like or does or thinks does not add or take away from God in the slightest because God is independent. He is self-sufficient. He is God. He's never in need of creation to do anything for him. Now, this is interesting, especially considering, you know, the history uh, that the Bible was written in because you had your pagan gods, right? You had all these pagan gods. You had all these idols and these pagan gods who were not gods, demons at, at the most and just imagination of humanity at the least, they needed mankind to do things for them. You look at the Greek gods, you look at the Roman gods, you look at those other fake gods, little g gods, they needed humans to do tasks, different tasks, if I could say the word, for them. Some of them, they needed humans to feed them, they needed food provided for them. But the true God needs nothing from humanity. He does not need us to do. He doesn't need us to provide for him in any way. In Acts 17, Paul made it clear. He was telling, you know, he was talking to the Athenians. He was talking to the Greeks and all their pantheon of gods and all these gods were needy. All these gods had human vices and, I mean, they, they were just... W wicked. I mean, if you're going to make a God, would you make him that wicked? Well, yeah, the Greeks did. But Paul was making sure that they understood who the true God was. And in verses 24 through 25 in Acts 17, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself, he himself gives life and breath and everything to everyone. He's the one that gives. He's not the one that receives. But here's the wonderful thing. He may not need us, but he loves us. And he desires to use us for himself. We might not be able to add anything to him or give anything to him, but as the paragraph summarizes it, God demonstrates his glory in his creation and through his creation and upon his creation, right? He demonstrates his glory. We are conduits of his glory to the rest of creation. Just like the psalmist said in Psalm 19.1, it's the heavens, they declare 
the glory of God. The sky displays his handiwork. The, it, we don't add to his glory. We don't like take something he doesn't have and give it to him. Like he didn't have enough glory, so here, let me give you some, give you some glory, God. You didn't, you didn't have enough. We are conduits of his own glory and we reflect his glory back to him and point his glory back to him and shine his glory all around us if we are willing to do that and we have trusted in him. But the paragraph continues about the, this creature-creator uh, relationship. It says, he alone is the source of all being and everything is from him, through him and to him. He has absolute sovereign rule over all creatures to act through them, for them, or upon them as he pleases. And so what this is describing is that God has complete dominion over every aspect of his creation, even the parts of creation that are in rebellion to him. God is the source of existence for everything that there is, and everything is under his sovereign command. He... He has ultimate authority. He has ultimate dominion over everything because he is the source of existence. He is the source of every, everything that exists. He is the source of it. He is not the source of evil. That was the choice of free creatures. But even those creatures that are in rebellion to him, he still has dominion over them. He's in charge, that means. You know, there wasn't some sort of council meeting and people voted whether God should be God or not. All in favor of God being God, raise your hand. No, He's just, it's just by the, who he is. It's because of who his nature, his existence. It's not like he had to be, you know, get on the throne. He didn't have to go through that whole rigmarole like uh, Charles had to go through to become king of England after Elizabeth died. God has just always God, God, he's always been on the throne. By virtue of his nature, by virtue of his position, he is the potter that is in control of the clay. To use a biblical, biblical analogy. He is called in Genesis 14, 19, Lord, most high God, the creator, possessor of heaven and earth. So that means all of creation belongs to him. And he has the right to do with his creation as he sees fit but it's all according to his good character and sovereign purposes. Sometimes he has to teach people hard lessons. He's in control. He can do that. Sometimes he has to teach people who he is. I think of King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked pagan. He was very arrogant. He pretty much thought that he was God and he was in control of his dominion. He thought he had everything under his thumb, so to speak, I guess. He thought all dominion belonged to him. He thought he was the all in all. Well, God finally said, okay, enough is enough. And he, if you remember the story from Daniel 4, he took Nebuchadnezzar's mind from him and he was nothing more than an animal. If the reading is correct, if, if our understanding of what it says is correct, it, it could have been up to seven years that he was like that. But God restored his mind when he would finally 
somehow repented, don't know exactly how that all worked, but this is what Nebuchadnezzar came to realize. Whether he actually lived it out or not is another story, but this is what he came to realize. It's recorded in Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35. This is what Nebuchadnezzar says. At the end of the appointed time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up toward heaven, and my sanity returned to me. I extolled the Most High, and I praised and glorified the one who lives forever. For his authority, his dominion, is an everlasting authority, and his kingdom extends from one generation to the next. All the inhabitants of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he wishes with the army of heaven with those who inhabit the earth. No one slaps his hand and says to him, what have you done? God is the ultimate authority. God has ultimate dominion. You know, in our form of government, we are supposed to have, right, checks and balances, supposed to have there ain't no one's going to check and balance God no one can slap his hand and say what are you doing you can't do that well he's the one who gave life he's the one that created everything God can do what he wants with his dominion but the wonderful thing is it's according to his character and he's good and he's just and he's perfect and he is holy And so he has dominion over everything. But then the paragraph continues in telling us that God has absolute knowledge over his creation. The paragraph goes on to say that in his sight, everything is open and visible. His knowledge is infinite and infallible. It uh, it does not depend upon any creature, so for him nothing is contingent or uncertain. What it's saying is, and what we learn from Scripture, is that God knows all things at all times about everything. God knows everything. God has a, God's the only one that has the complete knowledge of himself, and he has complete understanding of his creation and his creatures. He knows everything. Now, I want you to let that sink in for just a moment and let that moment of dread kind of fall in on you for a second. He knows everything. Everything. And the wonderful news is he still loves us in spite of knowing everything. Has anyone ever had the thought that, well, if someone or if anyone knew everything about me, They'd lock me up and throw away the key or anything, or am I the only one, okay? I might be, though. Everything you think, everything you do, everything, everything, and God loves you. And thankfully, through Jesus Christ, all that, everything will not be held over your head. Everything. But this goes against some certain teaching, false teachings that are out there. There are some who would deny God this knowledge. As one author describes such teaching, open theology. So open theology thinks that human beings are truly free if, if, if God absolutely knew uh, 
the future, human beings could not be truly free. Therefore, God does not know absolutely everything about the future. Open theism holds that the future is not knowable. Therefore, God knows everything that can be known, but he does not know the future. The theological term for that is malarkey. He absolutely positively does know the future. The confession says his knowledge is not dependent upon the creature, meaning that it doesn't matter what man chooses to do or not to do. God knows what can happen, what actually happens, and what will happen. God is not waiting on man to do something in order to know it. God already knows what his free creatures are going to choose to do. Now, there is the, a mystery. God knows what free creatures are going to do because he's God. He's eternal. We don't understand it because we are not. But yes, God knows what's happening in the future. There's another uh, thing that tries to find a middle ground called Molinism that believes that God would know what, if people chose to do a certain thing, what the results would be. But he doesn't know the choice until someone makes it, but he knows what the results of any choice would be. It's kind of called a middle knowledge, and I forget what the, what the other term is. But that's, you know, not, not true either. God knows the choices of his free creatures and what the results will, will be, and it takes nothing away from the freedom of his creatures. And that's just the mystery that we, we live with. Um, we believe that the Scripture clearly teaches, as one person summarizes it, that God's understanding is infinite, extending to all times and places. It is always infallible, meaning God, God doesn't know false things. Like his, his knowledge cannot be wrong. Like there's a lot of things that I think I know, but I actually don't know. And then I learned that I don't know it and I was completely wrong about something. God is never wrong in his knowledge. It says, it goes on to say, it's absolutely correct and independent, not relying on the collecting of information from external sources. God, so, you know, that means God doesn't have to do research. Hmm, you know, let me, let me look into that. Let me see if I can find out more about that. God, just, he doesn't need to do that. God didn't have to write research papers. He just knows. He didn't have to look into things. He just knows. He knows all our, everything. He even knows our words before we say it. Like in Psalm 139.4, uh, the psalmist said, Certainly my tongue does not frame a word without you, O Lord, being thoroughly aware of it. I mean, he knows what we're going to say before we even say it. Even, even when what comes out of our mouth might be complete, a complete mess. I was meeting with some this, someone this afternoon, and we were talking about some church things, and I, my, my brain and my mouth were not communicating with one another and the wrong words would just kept coming out of my mouth and I'd have to keep correcting myself. I'm like, what in the world is going on? And then I had my afternoon coffee and everything's been well since then. So God's knowledge of what his creatures do and what will happen is complete. Well, the paragraph goes on to talk about his holiness. I won't spend a lot of time there because uh, I had talked a lot about his holiness before, but it says that he is absolutely holy in all his plans, in all his works, and in all his commands. 
And, and so that means everything that God requires and everything that God wills and everything that God demands is gonna be completely in line with his holy character. God's not gonna go off the reservation, so to speak, and just do some, something that goes against who he is. Everything that he wills and commands and does is completely in line with his holy character and everything that entails. And then the paragraph concludes, angels and human beings owe to him all the worship, service, or obedience that creatures owe to the creator and whatever else he is pleased to require of them. And so that means God has a claim on his creation and he is due anything and everything that he demands from his creation because he's God. He, he demands obedience, well, he's owed obedience. He demands worship, he is owed worship. He demands devotion, he is owed devotion. He demands just word, look at his word. And he is owed that. And so we join the angel chorus in recognition of this as it's described for us in the book of Revelation, chapter five, verses 12 through 14. All these heavenly beings were singing in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was killed to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. And John says, then I heard every creature in heaven on earth, under the earth and the sea and all that is in them singing. To the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be praise, honor, glory, and ruling power forever and ever. And the four living creatures were saying, amen. And the elders threw themselves to the ground and worshiped. When you, when you really understand that creature-creator distinction and how who he is, you understand his attributes, you understand his character, you understand his works, you will join the heavenly choir singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We as creatures owe that to him. Our prayer is that we would so follow and obey. The problem is, in our sinful state, we think, yeah, but I'm just going to do my own thing. And it's, it's hard. It's a battle, I mean, with, with the flesh. No. God is owed your complete obedience. God is owed your constant worship. God is owed your eternal devotion. God is owed that you love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And we all think, oh boy, do I fall short of all of that. We'll praise him for the grace that he extends to us because we do fall short. The grace that is given through Jesus Christ. He, he is just. And if he does not receive from his creation what he is owed, he is more than just to do something about it, to give out justice. And yet through Jesus Christ, he gives mercy and love. 
for all who believe upon him. And you know what? When, when we believe upon Jesus Christ, our heart is changed. There is a desire to give God everything that he is owed, even though we fall short. But knowing that we fall short, we can just rely on the fact that we are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And God is, God is pleased with what he does receive from us. We want to pray, though, that we give God what he deserves because he is so good. He is such a good God. And we want to pray that all those in our community, in our family, in our workplace, our neighbors, and you know, school, and you know, everywhere that we're involved, all those who are in rebellion against God, who do not give him the glory that is his due, that do not give him the honor, the worship, the devotion that is his due, that they would come and they would know his goodness and they would fall at the feet of Jesus Christ and just realize how wonderful he is and, and give their lives to Jesus Christ. We want to pray that they would understand the truths that, yeah, people think doctrine is boring, but the more you know doctrine, the more you just praise God for who he is. And we want the lost to worship and serve him as well. So we pray for that. We pray that we ourselves would kind of get out of our own little bubble and give God that which is his due. And that we would remember the, the distinction between creator and creation. You and I, we're not God. So stop acting like it. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.